Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate investor, real estate broker, and director of economic research with a company called Rare Real Estate. And today we got a cool episode where we're going to give you a step-by-step process of buying your very first investment property. But before we dive into that, I would like to introduce my co-pilot, a man by the name of Nick Hill. How's it going, Nick? It's going very well, Dan. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited for this episode. This was kind of by request. Um, Yeah, excited to get into it. But there's a little bit of housekeeping, so why don't we start off with that? Yeah, it's nice that we're finally getting to the requests section of the uh, the wedding party here. You know, like <laughs> when the DJ just runs out of good original material and then starts putting out absolute bangers because they're just listening to what the audience wants. <laughs> it took us too long to figure that out. Um, and make sure you stick around to the end because we're also going to try out something new, which is a segment of haves and wants for our listeners. So we basically just are going to run through a couple of things that listeners have emailed to us that they're looking to buy or sell. So deals that people are selling, uh, mandates that people are looking to fill on the purchase side. Some of them are kind of cool. So you can email us in the event that you hear something that you might want or that is an individual that you want to be connected with. And also if you have something that you are looking to buy or you have a property that you're looking to sell, send it over to us. Who knows? I mean, we're trying to see really what this platform can do in regards to actually transacting real estate. And we also thought it'd be a really cool way to connect with our listeners, but also connect our listeners to one another. Yeah. Love it. I think it's a great idea. I'm excited to see where it goes. But let's get into today's episode because, Dan, this is going to be a journey. It's actually designed as a roadmap or a checklist, if you will, to buy that first investment property. Now, we've done episodes somewhat similar to this in the past, but nothing this start to finish. We're also going to be referencing many other episodes throughout this episode. So do yourself a favor, go back to listen to those again. And if you're new here, go back and check those episodes and all of them out for the first time. Now, there's 19 steps here, and we're going to go back and forth and discuss each, add some anecdotes and some, some do's and don'ts, some pros and cons, and follow along because if you can complete all of these, I guarantee you'll be able to buy an investment property. Let's dive into the first one, shall we, Dan? Let's do it. Okay, first one here, I'm going to take it away. It is set your goals and understand your why. Congratulations and welcome. You have decided to start investing in the wonderful world of real estate, a world full of endless opportunities. But why are you doing it? This may seem like a trivial question, but it plays a serious role in your investing career. So investing is tough. Actually, it can be downright very, very difficult. And many people have gone, give, they give up along the way uh, when, and they kind of just return to their ordinary lives. They realize that it's not passive. Um, you need to have an understanding of what is the light at the end of the tunnel, that guidance, that, that North Star, so that when you lose your way, which you will, it's going to happen. It'll remind you why you're doing this. For some people, it's the idea of leaving a legacy. For some people, it's making a positive impact on the world or building wealth for future generations. And probably the most common is is time. It's 
buying back that precious little time that we have through creating alternative income streams or amassing capital and building, you know, uh, I think a more real system of wealth than what the, you know, the typical, you know, dream of nine to five life, save your money, put it in index funds and, and whatever it is, which I, you know, honestly actually seems to work pretty well, but, but, <laughs> but, but I think a lot of people want to go out of scope and kind of like, you know, we always get, you get into the trading of stocks or whatever it is. And, and it kind of corrupts that, that strategy a bit. Real yeah. estate's one of those things where you, you know, you're, you're sort of forced to be diamond handing things because the, the, the asset's pretty illiquid. And so it's, it's not something like stocks where you can, you know, liquidate your way into failure. Um, and that's why a lot of people gravitate towards it. The other reason is it's a lot easy, easier to understand. Everybody's lived in a house, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a pretty simple one. It's, you know, I was never a big, what's your why, set your goals, write them down, all that kind of stuff kind of guy until I started doing it. And once you figure out your why, again, it, as you said, Dan, it's that North Star. When times do get tough, it's the tough that'll keep going. And if you have a why, if you're doing this for a reason, for a purpose that you believe in, whether it's generational wealth or getting your time back, or that you just truly believe that, you know, we need more housing units and you're going to help put people in them because it's our, you know, it's, it's not, I guess, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's our right to, to have, to have shelter. So whatever that may be, I just think it's a great thing to, to get you through those hard times. If you have, if you're doing it for a bigger reason and a bigger purpose. So to stack on top of that, sort of the next step is, and, and the easiest way to look at this is, you know, you've set your goals. That's kind of like what the top of the stairs is. And you want to go look at this staircase that's in front of it. How do I get to the top of those stairs? And it's literally just one step at a time. And the first step from my perspective, once you've understood what lies at the top of those stairs is how do we make a, create a plan to get there? And so I would advise people to actually look at this like a business plan and treat investing in real estate like a business. You're, it, it, from my perspective, a lot of people use the word, they throw the word passive income around on, on real estate. I don't even know any, any investing that is truly passive income. Probably the closest you're going to get is dividend stocks. I don't think real estate necessarily falls into that category. And so if we can all just accept that, even if you're managing it, you still got to manage the manager. And if we can accept that and say, okay, we're getting into the business of property, then treat it like a business. Whether your plan is to buy two, 20 or 200 properties, you need to go into it with a plan. Businesses that that plan well succeed. This may actually seem like an unnecessary or redundant thing to do, or it's like a make work task, but it's actually quite opposite because you start putting this out into your brain and activating your sort of particular activation system. So you're paying attention to the right things along the process. Yeah, I, I honestly couldn't agree more. This is such an important step in that staircase that you're mentioning, Dan, that often gets overlooked because a good business plan guides you through each stage of starting and managing your business. And you'll use that business plan like a GPS for how to structure, run, and grow your business. And it's a way to think through and detail all the key elements on how your business will run. And it's not as hard as you think because there's really no right or wrong way to do it. Let me tell you, you're going to go Google business plan after you hear this and there's going to be everything from a one-page startup business plan that I've used many times for the $100 startup, which is a great book. And there's going to be 
massive business plans that are, you know, uh, that have chapters to them. You don't need one of those. All you need is a one pager with milestones and goals, and it will allow you to track them. And another bonus is if you have a business plan, it kind of makes you more of a business person and a potential business owner, which will also possibly help you get funding or help you find partners. It is interesting, you know, if you look back at that lean business model canvas, similar to what you're mentioning, you know, this is sort of startup ideology, right? And they they challenge you to look first at the problem. So what are the the top three problems that, you know, that you're capable of solving? And what's the, who are the stakeholders that are, or the customer segments that are impacted by this? And so, you know, I mean, the most glaringly obvious one in Canada is, houses. We have a housing crisis in this country. And so can I solve that problem or how could I solve that problem? And who are the people that are impacted by it? Well, you know, these are the people that you're going to be renting to. It could be immigrants who, you know, can't find affordable housing when they want to move here and start a new life. It could be students who, you know, can't find affordable housing when they are trying to go learn. Um, Whoever you plan to cater to, is really who you're tailoring your, your product around. And lean, the Lean Business Model Canvas kind of takes you through the the process of actually market validating, learning from your potential customers, asking them questions. So don't overcomplicate things. Just write up a simple business plan. It could be a one-pager on the Lean Business Model Canvas. I think a lot of people look at business plans the way they look at goals. Once they're written down, they become set in stone. They become law. You put them out into the universe and you tell your brain that that's important. That activates your reticular activation system. This is actually like, it sounds like woo woo stuff. And like, you know, a lot of people like into that motivation world and all, and all of that stuff. And I'm not really necessarily a huge fan of that, but like there's actual biology behind that. Like if you have, or if you're thinking about buying a certain car, you're going to start seeing that car all over the road anymore because you've told your brain that it's important to you and your brain starts paying attention, looking for those things. So if you do that with thing you know this is like when people talk about manifestation and all that it's really just biology it's tell your brain something's important and it'll start focusing on that thing yeah no really great points there dan and and the funny thing is i think you know one of the reasons people are hesitant to write down their goals or write down their their business plans is because they feel like once they do it's set in stone right it might be the manifesting thing which i completely agree but maybe i don't want to write down that i'm going to buy X number of properties over X number of years because I don't want to hold myself accountable to that because it's too scary. But business plans and goals change. They don't have to remain set. They don't have to remain set in stone. In fact, if your goals never change, you probably aren't doing enough. It's a great point. Let's keep going. Education is the next one. You should already be doing this if you, and I'm sure you have this. This should be the first step, but you should always be seeking out education in anything you do. Um, and once you've gone down that path, you'll begin to discover more and more. There's books, videos, courses, and of course, podcasts that offer amazing free or almost free information that you should be taking advantage of. It is literally out there for the taking. We're literally every day you and I learning constantly every week staying up to date for our clients but also just because we love it like and and 
you know, trying to keep this podcast updated for our listeners, learning as much as possible, but you want to utilize as much of the stuff that you're, you're learning, try and apply it practically. So if it's, you just learned what a cap rate was from listening to our podcast episode about cap rates, go and randomly calculate a couple of cap rates on properties, sharpen your pencil a little bit. And I think that, and you, I would hope that, you know, it's easy for me because I really am obsessed with this industry. I think about it all the time and, and, So it's obviously a lot simpler for me. So the question that you might need to ask yourself is, you know, if it's a grind for you to go through the reps of putting that education to work, making it practical and real, this might not be the right industry for you. You might, you know, if there's something that you're enjoying putting your time and energy towards a little bit more, you might actually want to pursue that industry rather than this one, Um, especially if it's a type of investing or a type of business that you know you could you could also make money because a lot of people aren't real estate investors as their primary source of income and so because you're getting into the business of property it's very much a side hustle for a lot of people and i think a lot of people need to think about it that way and the question becomes could you make more money doing another side hustle my my objective here isn't to dissuade people from real estate investing but it's to ask the question like are you sure this is what you want to do are you the right fit for it because if you're not you might end up doing a poor job at it in the fullness of time. Yeah, really well said, Dan. And, you know, I think uh, an important takeaway from from that is that you don't have to enjoy every part of real estate investing. There are tons of things that I don't enjoy about real estate investing, but overall, I still love it. And this goes to the next, it's a great segue because it goes to the next portion Um which is where you find people to do the things that you're not good at or that you don't enjoy doing. Dan, what would I be talking about here? (laughs) Building a network, building a team. (laughs) I think uh, people are calling them networking events these days. Mm. Yeah. Reminds me of that Simpsons episode where they're like, have you guys heard of the internet? But they're like talking about the the net in like a, the bathing suit, like like it's an internet. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) networking events, a great way to learn, uh, you know, who does what in the industry and find people who are better, who have be- complementary skill sets to yours. Where you, so you can gradually start outsourcing the parts of the tasks that you don't like, aren't good at. I'm, I'm a good acquisitions guy, but I'm not a good operations guy. And so I have a team where we have actual excellent operators that we work with and that you know, that complements my skill set exceptionally well. I can't stress the importance of this enough. You can't, this is a, this is a we business. This requires knowing people in the industry. It requires working with people in the industry. It is a shoulder to shoulder collaboration industry. You will not succeed in real estate without knowing a lot of people in real estate without networking and having a strong, great network. You likely won't be successful in this industry. Great point. Now, this is crazy. I just came up with this last night and I think it, I think it's going to stick. Your net work is your net worth. Wow. Again, boom. came up with it totally. What a line. Yeah. Nick Hill original. I came up with a good one too. Teamwork makes the dream work. Oh, wow. Yeah, Groundbreaking nobody, Nobody's stuff. ever said that before. <laughs> Overused cliches aside, build your network. Let's quickly talk about how. The first thing to do be self-aware, be interesting, be a good listener, ask the right questions. This is a a huge one for me because I literally built a content business and all of my clients I get from just asking people questions about real estate on the internet. That's like, I just started, I had this thirst for knowledge and I realized that I didn't know nearly enough. 
I got on Twitter and everyone was mean and told me that I was dumb. And I was like, oh, they're right. So I was like, how do I not be dumb? And I started asking people questions about real estate, trying to learn as much as I could. And now all of a sudden people don't think I'm dumb when it comes to real estate. And that's literally because I just learn stuff from other people and I can, can you know, uh, boil it down and regurgitate it very effectively. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to, you, you really got to figure out and from that process, you'll learn what other people are and you can kind of get to that. What do you, what are you calling it? I think you got an acronym for this. This, so this is a, well, it goes back to, you know, being able to ask the right questions, being able to provide that value, all the things that you were just saying, Dan. And there's this marketing term called a USP, which is. Yeah. Like our, I think unique, our microphones are both like USB. USB, right? USB 3C, <laughs> A, B, or C, or whatever. The new ones. Like, yeah, you ought to get the converter to switch so you can plug it into your MacBook. This is not a USB. It's a USP, ah. a unique selling proposition or a unique selling point. So it's a marketing statement that differentiates a product or a brand from its competitors. So consider yourself that product or brand, which you eventually will be. How do you differentiate yourself from the others how are you going to build that network why are people going to want to talk to you what's your skill are you a connector are you a deal finder are you an operations guy are you a lawyer a lot of this comes with the necessity of having a high degree of self-awareness and being able to accept that you can't do it all and knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are and and trying to find out and, and really honing in hopefully the thing that you're good at you also like doing and honing in at that thing so that you can use it to create value for other people and you can ask them to create value for you on the things that they're good at. This is like basic economics. Um, Adam Smith had this concept in The Wealth of Nations. It was called the specialization and division of labor. Our entire economy is built on this. There are people who specialize, companies who specialize in manufacturing, companies who specialize in marketing. Um, specialization is what what really allows us all to be really good at and do the things that we're really good at. So now that you're in a position to network, where do you do it? Well, there are tons of places to find real estate meetups. Like literally we have one on meetup.com and ours is just one of <laughs> dozens that are peppered across every town and city across the country. And if there isn't one, be the guy to make it. Maybe that's your, your USP, your unique selling point that you are an aggregator of people. Love it. Also, another great way to do is reach out to anyone that you know that's involved with real estate. I have started a number of businesses over the years. The first thing I did when I started that business was reach out to anyone and anyone I knew that had experience in that business, in that category. And it, it, it got me to where I am today. An agent on Instagram, that friend that bought a duplex two years ago, someone who's got a basement suite, book a call with them, take them out for coffee. Follow the breadcrumbs until you find those real real estate investors. Yeah, and I think this would be a, an excellent way to segue into, you know, if you haven't listened to it already, if you haven't been with us for a long time, go check out episode 20, the six people that you need to buy your first investment property. And then I think we would move into kind of that that next piece, which is building a team, right? I think you meant a power team. Who, who are these people <laughs> on the power team? Well, we've got a mortgage agent, a real estate agent, an insurance agent, a 007 secret agent. Lawyer, paralegal, accountant. Appraiser, inspector. Contractor, handyman. 
Probably property management eventually. Hopefully, if you're getting to the scale point and mentors and other investors, you ideally want everybody on your team to also be investors themselves or at least be investor focused. And this is, you know, continues along that theme of attracting like-minded individuals. Keep in mind that your your team, your power team will grow and change and you may eventually have multiple realtors in different locations and one lawyer on your team that's helping you to build your portfolio or your real estate business. Totally. You also may start off with a traditional mortgage agent or keep one around, but you'll eventually have to start exploring maybe private lending option or some other non-traditional financing options. Yeah, and you may need a contractor for certain projects or early on when you're really trying to build in value, you need somebody who knows how to, you know, to do more specialized types of things that are really into that. And then later on, once you get into the business of management, you're turning over suites more often. You're not trying to add value to pull equity from properties. All of a sudden, you know, you you might need a handyman or somebody maybe with that that's has a more flexible schedule and can respond to clients' needs or sorry, tenants' needs. I guess clients really, but tenants' needs on a more regular basis. Totally, and and same goes with an inspector. I'm sure you've worked with an inspector, or you will be working with an inspector on your first deal for small multifamilies like duplexes and triplex. But when you need an inspector for a larger apartment building or a commercial building. You know, be aware that those those changes are going to have to happen. And remember, that team grows just like the goals in the business plan. You're always adapting. It's a moving target. Success isn't the, you know, a place on the road. It's always a moving target. And probably the most important person or people on your ever-evolving power team are other investors. As you scale, your team will scale and your mentors will scale and they'll evolve as well. The mentor that helps you buy your first duplex may not be the same mentor that helps you buy your 20th duplex or your first apartment building or your first infill development project. Yeah, I, I love that. I And I, you know, again, that's not to say that those people don't play a role anymore or that those people aren't growing with you. It just means that at different places and at different points in your investing career, you will need different things. And you will then become a mentor for the next person that's coming along to do this. Dan, let's get to a very important piece of the puzzle here. Yeah, let's talk about financing. So this is among the most important aspects of real estate investing here. And this starts with a mortgage agent from my perspective. I am obviously a little bit biased. It can also start with a bank. But if you ever plan on being serious or semi-serious as a real estate investor, business owner, entrepreneur, you'll have to look at more options than just the banks because, you know, we, in a lot of cases, get income from alternative finances. We're not, we don't fit the bank boxes as investors in most cases. Maybe you do for your first deal, but if you did for, for the first deal, then it's typically pretty rare that you do for the second deal because you, you have, you know, you're, you're in a higher leverage position, you're higher exposed. And there's usually a gap kind of from, and I just hit this point where I've just started borrowing from A lenders for the first time in my life, and it's mind blowing. But, <laughs> uh, when you get into deal number one or two, you're usually doing it with an A because it's a primary or maybe you're house hacking or it's your first deal and you're still renting or whatever it is. Deals two through five often ends up being B-side or even private because nobody wants to lend to somebody who still has the same income they did when they just qualified for their first deal 
and is now buying deal number two, three, or four. And then eventually you get to a scale where banks do want to start looking at you because you have this stability. You They've realized that you are in the business of real estate. You're a professional landlord. And that's compelling to a lot of lenders. Yeah, I love that. Great point, Stan. But let's rewind it a little bit because we're just talking about your first property here, which again, likely will be through a bank. Now, again, obviously a mortgage agent has access to a lot of banks. So whether you go directly to a bank or a mortgage agent, that's the first stop. And that starts with getting a pre-approval, which is a pretty simple exercise that will allow you to understand and explore your actual options. You never want to approach a realtor without having some form of a pre-approval, pre-qualification, or at least a good idea of where your finances are coming from. Now, once you've completed this pre-approval application and spoken to your bank or your mortgage agent, you now have an understanding of what the total loan amount that you could get approved for. You can start to look at rates and products and options, but most importantly, you kind of now have a green light to go and actually start looking for that first property. So obviously, as Dan was saying, you know, this is a bit more of the traditional route. Usually this is only going to work on your first or first few properties. But, you know, let's also throw in the fact that short-term money could come into play. Uh, you know, if you're going to try to burr your first property, you might be looking at something a bit less traditional. So it really is subjective, but financing overall plays a massive part you're not going to buy a property if you don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, it's an exceptionally good point. And I came across a tweet today where a guy was like, "How? Like, what is this idea of buying real estate with no money? Like, investing with no money? Like, what other asset class do you get people who think that they like? Are people in stocks being like, hey, let's just go buy some stocks with no money? No. So you have to also have a bit of a reality check. Like, it's really easy to." be attracted to the idea of like OPM and no money and whatever, but you're in a lot of cases, a lot better to downsize your goals for your first deal and go and buy a cash flowing multiplex in an area that you can afford. If it's in the U S or maybe a cheaper Canadian city, you know, some great deals in Saskatchewan and the prairies, there's some, you know, you can get some exceptionally good cap rates, cash flow, which helps make you better at applying for the next deal. But, and then that's kind of what, you know, we can use to segue into the next piece, which is really, choosing these two things are interchangeable so but we'll go with we'll go with geography first nick so so hit me with that one yeah let's talk about picking your market now we're not going to get too in depth on this one because we have brought it up in several other episodes but simply put look for a market with growth yeah and so for a lot of, in a lot of cases this is drive till you qualify or drive till you quantify in and and that's kind of this little thing that we've coined on the show an actual original I think here on the show <laughs> uh, uh, and driving till you quantify is you know going to a market that is so far away until you find the yields that make sense and for a lot of us on your first deal Eventually, yeah, you can think more about capital appreciation and whatever. But when you know, if we rewind to the last point, which is financing, you are going to have to find a deal that fits in the box that the lender who is giving you the money to buy the deal says you can buy. And in most cases for us, they want to see debt service coverage ratios. They want to see that the property can service the debt that they're putting on it. They don't want to be in a high risk position and have to come after you for your personal guarantee and make you pay the mortgage. And so when we get to that, you'll notice that properties that typically debt service cover in 
you know, within that, that very tight box of your first deal before you get into the more creative underwriting, creative lenders and, and scale lenders is going to be pretty rigid and it's going to be a higher cap rate. You're usually going to see six plus percent cap rate expectations. You don't find those everywhere. And so where can you, it's usually easier to, to reverse engineer the market to, to meet the cap rate than it is to, to reverse engineer the next thing that we're going to talk about. But when you're picking this market, um, you also want to understand who the tenant is, where, what's the employment in that area. Get familiar with a city as if it's like, think about everything that you know about the city that you grew up in. Who Who is the major employers there? Where does everybody go shopping? Where are the transit routes? Like, Think about all of the details that you know, and you almost have to understand these markets as well as you understand the town that you grew up in. Yeah, great point, Stan. I'm just going to throw this out there. Go listen to episode seven, the 25-point deal checklist. Or episode 26, which is how to decide which market to invest in. Love it. Okay, let's move on, Dan. What's the what's the next one we got here? So the next way that you can diversify, and when you think about finance, again, financing is often going to be the one who, who directs you into this box. You know, we kind of mentioned during the business plan portion that it ends up being a decision tree. So if you go to a traditional A lender, they're going to look at, they're going to give you a loan and they're going to say, you can, you, this is the loan that you can qualify if you buy residential. And in most cases, there isn't a loan that you could get if you were to buy commercial property. But there are other uh, opportunities, like for owner operators, as an example, who want to work with BDC, Business Development Bank of Canada, who can get much better financing if they want to use real estate as a, you know, wealth generating tool for their business. And so there's the, you know, if you can't, drive till you qualify or drive till you quantify geographically. If you can't hunt geographically for the yield or the the investment that's going to fit the criteria that you need, you can also specialize or cha- change your specialization or differentiation through asset class. So you could maybe become, you know, if you, you years from now, you could invest in anything you want. Self-storage, sure. Airbnbs, sure. Sounds good. Commercial, why not? But it's vital to pick and stick with something when you're starting out. And and in most cases, just the way the credit market is designed right now, that ends up being residential for most of your entry-level investors. Yeah, really well said, Dan. I, I, you know, I think it's a great place to start, right? We both started in small multifamily. I'd say it's probably likely the most common across North America to start with either that single-family conversion into a multifamily or, or purchasing a duplex or triplex. I think it teaches you the fundamentals of real estate. And just like you were saying with the Airbnbs, no, I saw this YouTube video about self-storage or, you know, pre-construction is the way to go. There's always going to be so many opportunities in real estate. But I can guarantee you, if you go chasing every single one of them and try understanding every single one of them, you're likely to end up not doing any of them. So pick something and stick to it. Yeah, and stick to it and, and become an expert in it if you can. Learn as much as you possibly can about it. Circle back to that education part. I think it is, you know, the, the residential is also easy because everyone's lived in a house. And in most cases, everyone's rented a house. And so, you know, the majority of people that have rented, they, you know, period of time before they buy their primary and, you know, they weren't living with their parents anymore. And so they've been a tenant and they've been a, maybe an owner of a primary residence. And so there's not a huge barrier to entry of knowledge or a learning curve when you take possession of the asset because you're familiar with what you own because you've interacted with it already. Not everybody has, you know, 
been a tenant in a in a plaza or lived in a plaza and, <laughs> and so you know and so it's it, there's there's a bit more to learn yeah love it so we've now gone over picking your market and picking your asset class now these two might these two next ones might sound redundant but they're even deeper dives now that you've picked your market let's talk about analyzing the market and now that we've picked our asset class let's talk about starting to analyze deals within that asset class so We've picked our market, but now we're going to look at even sub-markets and what to look for when analyzing those markets. You can pick a city, but where are you going to go in that city and what matters? What are you looking for? You're looking for employment. You want to know the demographics of that neighborhood. And you also want to know the overall growth potential, whether from a, maybe you're restricted by, by mountains or you know, the green belt or, or water of some kind. You're also, you know, maybe there's major growth potential on an engineering side of things. There's a new highway coming, a new bridge. The sewer uh, capacity is increasing. For sure. And yeah, I think, well, looking at the demographics, I mean, one of the major themes in the macro right now is populations of countries shrinking. And a mm-hmm. lot of, in Canada, because we're, uh, we immigrate a lot of our population, we have more flat population pyramid, but China, as an example, is starting to see, and this is considered one of these big catalysts for potential um, bad things to happen globally, is that China's population will start decreasing for the first time and the global population can start decreasing for the first time. So where are your residents coming from? Where are your potential tenants coming from? Is the economy even growing? Um, do you have an understanding of a local mi- mi- micro economy? Are there good areas and bad areas and do you know what they are do you know what type of tenants are living in certain in the, in the good areas and the bad areas because some people like to be uh, to, to carve out a niche in the bad areas um how does it compare against the rest of the product type be it housing stock or commercial property is there is there a certain node a retail node where you're seeing businesses fail close all the time because maybe the rents are too expensive or maybe there's not enough foot traffic there maybe a big employer moved out of the area and the people aren't spending money in that that specific note. Go listen to episode 26, how to decide what market to invest in once again. Love it. Let's keep going here, Dan, and I'm going to give you this one. Yeah, because you know I love it. This is the fun uh, part. Yeah. This is this is like, I, I mean, I, I do this for fun. I've been doing this for fun since I was like, I, I want to say like in high school. I remember in high school, I was like, what could I was like, I love saving money. And I was like, what could I buy right now? Like, I didn't know that I needed to get a mortgage. I was like trying to buy stuff cash, like thinking about buying properties <laughs> cash. So I was like looking at like condos in like Jane and Finch. They were like 30 or 40 grand back then, right? And it's oh. like turnkey rental condo, um, you know, and, and probably would have done well on them. Um, this is the fun part. And, and if you, you know, if you don't think this is the fun part, then maybe real estate investing isn't for you. Deals are like cold calls. It's a numbers game. Make a hundred cold calls and you get one to five deals out of it. Analyze a hundred properties and the results are probably going to be the same. Take something, you know, and present it and iterate it over and over and over again and see what happens. That's it. I just challenge you to do that. I won't even apply any, you know, any prejudice to it or, or judgment to what will the outcome will be. Just try it and see what happens. Love it. Go listen to episode 19, the top five return metrics to analyze a deal. Or episode 43, I think, was where we compared cash flow versus cap rate on a step-by-step basis. Yeah, love it. So if you listen to the show that you know that we have a segment called Deal of the Day on most shows and we use Landlord.io, which is an amazing tool. It shows you the first year and the 10-year projections. You can look at your cap rate, your equity multiple, and your IRR, but this is your first property. Maybe you aren't too concerned about IR. Maybe you don't even know what it is. And maybe you don't 
need to be. I would say the most important deal metric that you need to know and understand is the simplest, cash flow. Now, analyzing deals comes down to really one simple word, math. Do the numbers work? And I think, you know, like maybe to jump over to the next one, because I, I know we're running a bit short on time here. Um, the, you know, looking at the inputs and outputs, inspecting the property, right? You see all the, the, the memes and skits about the dads being the home inspectors, right? Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, th- those are absolutely hilarious. The, you know, you bring your dad or your uncle and, and all of a sudden the, uh, the realtors love that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> inspections may seem a lot more necessary for an old century home duplex than a condo, but uh, they, they they are in that case. And even a condo, you want to make sure you check the status certificate as an example. Really inspect the asset. Understand what you're buying. 100%. I mean, I almost bought a place with a small crack in the foundation. I came from a construction background. I was like, ah, you know, let's bring in an expert here. We had a the inspector brought in a foundation expert and we got quoted between 50 and a hundred thousand yeah. dollars to to fix the foundation so boom the yeah. math didn't work killed the deal and the inspection saved me years of headache and, and probably hundreds of thousands and this comes back to the do the numbers work estimate the rehab costs see how much they they change your metrics understand how much if you're gonna you know invest capital in in making the property better how much the return on investment of the, those renovations is going to be um, really get an understanding for that and then think about those things when you're deciding to negotiate or purchase or make an offer which is the next step Nick yeah the the estimating rehab costs, you know, again, this is where you ideally want your contractor or your handyman to get off of that power team bench and get involved. Ideally, you walk the property Drop the gloves with that person. even, maybe. Oof, I like it. You walk, yeah, you, I mean, ideally, you walk the property, you know, and I've paid a contractor to walk, walk a property with me before. And other times, they've, they've just done it to provide me a quote, knowing that they'll get the job. But in any circumstances, if they can be there for the walkthrough or pre-purchase, that's ideal. Next up would be deciding to purchase and make an offer, or do you want to talk about like sort of using those components to negotiate that offer, kind of wrap the whole thing together there? Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 keep the train going here. I mean, I think the key takeaway from estimating rehab costs uh, is you know whatever the cost is, whether it's a few thousand bucks to paint and a week's worth of work that you're going to try to do yourself, or a hundred thousand dollars to you know, add another suite or to do a full basement renovation, whatever the cost, work them into your numbers and account for the time it will take to get those renos done. Dan, why don't you take the next one and, and then we'll chat about it. Yeah. So I think, look, this is where you got to decide to to purchase and make an offer. And you, so you put it, you put it on paper, you know, uh, it, that's where it becomes real. Have your three scenarios, a good, better and best offer and be, be ready to execute. And your realtor, uh, they're hard to find the good ones. I don't know any. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and and the realtor will draft it up in most cases. Sometimes, you know, people more sophisticated investors are buying direct from the vendor and the lawyers are doing it, et cetera, et cetera. But in most cases, the first iteration, you're going to have a lawyer. Don't be devastated or give up if the offer gets rejected. Mark, the market is a lot of markets in Canada are extremely competitive. It's a numbers game. You can't fall in love with a piece, piece of dirt. There will always be deals. And then the next piece comes down to once your offer is in, it gets bounced back. You're going to be negotiating it back and forth. This is where the investor focused realtor will really shine. Are they using metrics, cap rates to understand or to, to present to the vendor why your offer is fair, why it makes sense. Is your, is your offer strategic based on comparables and due diligence that you perform? Use the inspection, like we mentioned, to your advantage to say, you know, yeah, we would have paid 
your asking price, but we got to take 40K off or 50K off for that that crack in the foundation that Nick mentioned. Ask for a vendor take back mortgage. And we did a whole episode on vendor take back mortgages or ask for vacant possession. Make the, the owner be responsible for delivering you the units where you can actually realize the upside in rents. Um, whatever you can do to make the deal sweeter, negotiating is the time to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well said. I mean, really, you this is where that realtor comes in and and earns their keep make that deal sweeter negotiations and, and having a good negotiator that's the time to do it now that that's done you've got the place congratulations you're a landlord now everyone hates you <laughs> yeah you're an absolute millionaire congratulations go retire now, and sit on the beach nothing else to passive do. income that's it end of the episode um Let's talk about insurance, an often overlooked and not the sexiest part of any transaction, kind of annoying, but there have been so many horror stories, I cannot tell you. So you need to know what kind of insurance you need. There's a special type of home insurance you need to purchase as a landlord. Now, there's things like rental income property insurance, which is similar to traditional home insurance, but there's property coverage, landlord belongings, liability coverage, loss of rental income. You can even do some popular add-ons like flood or earthquake insurance if you're in specific areas, extended contents, Airbnb, and even non-payment of rent. And I cannot stress this enough. Our advice is to get insurance and understand the policy. Again, Get that insurance, that investor focused, that real estate investor focused insurance agent of yours to describe to you what you are covered for. Because we have heard stories from student housing um, that that you know with fires that that people weren't covered. Cover yourself. This is this Nick is as much your responsibility. To, uh, Nick's favorite party song in university was "Burning Down the House." I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. You're not were you the, the tenant or the landlord in that experience. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, executing the reno is the the next piece. So once there is fire damage in the house, because Nick was your tenant, um, <laughs> I like to overestimate the time and cost. This way, you know, if if you can come under that cost, it comes in as a win. You know, if it's paint and cosmetic job, little makeup on a pig, I think we're calling it these days. Get in out as fast as you can so that you can get it rented. Remember, every month that goes by, you're losing income on your property. If it's a larger job, make sure your communication and, and you're really in line uh, with how everything and all these milestones are going to get hit, time and cost, and figure out how you can adjust to make sure that you are getting this unit back to market ASAP. Yeah, and if you are trying to GC it yourself exercise caution again there is no real blanket statement here diy renos can be an amazing way to save money build in that sweat equity dan i know that we've both done it because we've both helped each other do it on our properties yeah but you need to know what you're doing you also need to know when to call in help how much that help will cost and how available that help will be Sometimes you open up a wall and you can find a leak or a major plumbing or an electrical issue that has to be fixed. Well, doesn't seem like that big of a problem. Calling a plumber or an electrician, right? Well, you are now waiting for that tradesperson to get in and complete their scope of work before you can continue yours. And that waiting may throw off your timeline or it may result in major expenses. And they're not part of your Gantt chart. They're not part of your organization milestone chart. So, you know, DIY GC really depends on your skill level, your budget, and, uh, you know, your timeline, a bunch of other variables. So proceed with caution. For sure. And then, you know, uh, 
in a lot of cases, you know, maybe a global pandemic can happen and trades just disappear or get booked up because that <laughs> happened to me. And it taught me that, you know, in a lot of cases, GCing yourself isn't, isn't necessarily the best thing to do. Um, once you got the unit done and you got to get it rented out, find it. There's a component where you're either the, the deal, the property needs to be managed. That means finding a property manager or not finding a property manager. One of the most frequently asked questions for new investors is, do I get a property manager? And to me, it's a scale thing. It's when it becomes worthwhile. It's a way to passivize the income stream to, you know, to when when you get to the point where it makes financial sense to do it, or it's too much for you to do a good job as a landlord as a side hustle. So you either decide to, I'm going to become a full time landlord, which isn't lucrative enough for most people, but a lot of people do it in the states where the cash returns are better, or you got to hire somebody to be that full time landlord for you. Yeah, so let's look at the pros and cons here quickly, Dan. The pros of property management pretty obvious. You are paying someone else to deal with the headaches from your tenants and your rentals that I can almost guarantee you will happen on a weekly or at the very least a monthly basis. So you get less headaches, but you get less money. So cash flow being the most important thing, especially on your first investment, which is what we're talking about now, is being sacrificed and it's being paid out to someone else. That is the pro, but also the con. The con is that you are giving up that cash flow. You are also losing the opportunity to experience what being a landlord and a property manager entails. Even when you do eventually bring someone on, this is what Dan and I both did. We both have property managers now, but we we managed ourselves. We learned the hard way and we created best practices now to bring in and teach that property manager, even those She's probably taught us more than definitely. we could ever teach That's her. That's definitely the case. But the, you know, I mean, look, you do. The, here's the thing: you do give up some operational control by having a property manager run the asset. But that can also be an advantage because you do give up some of the the operational control. And so there are people who could run the asset better than you because once you start get getting to a certain scale, you get stretched too thin, and you're not doing a good job as a landlord, and that can become a problem. Um, and one of the big ways that this shows up is the last one where we're going to talk about this here is finding tenants. Do you have the time to go through? You're going to, in, in the current market, the rental market is so tight in most municipalities across Canada that rentals are oversubscribed. You're going to get hundreds of applications. Maybe, maybe not applications, but you're going to get hundreds of people interested. Do you Are you capable of screening through hundreds of people, calling all of those references, looking at all of the jobs, doing the analytical work to find the right tenants? Because the tenant is the real asset. And, you know, we've, we've had, we've presented the report here on, from the guys on, on rentpanda.ca who are exceptional at, you know, tenant placement services as an example. Um, but is this something, is this one of those areas where you need to expand your power team? Um, but this is really the way to manage preemptively by bringing on the right people to be involved in your business, bringing on the right customers or clients to be involved in your business. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, we've said this before. We say it again. Your most important real estate assets are tenants. That is episode 25. Go check that out. From here, you know, this is where you either bring on an agent again who, who does this. You bring on a, that property manager that you eventually bring on. And that brings us to the final, final point, Dan, which is managing that rental, which we'll have a full episode on because that is way too much to fit into the last couple of minutes here. For sure. But that was the roadmap from start to finish on how to find and buy and become a real estate investor and get your first property from all the way from mindset and before you even look at that first step on the staircase all the way to 
placing a tenant in your rental. So congratulations. We're getting a little long distance here. So I want to, um, we're doing some long distance podcasting. So I just want to, I, <laughs> I promised everybody at the beginning that we would do a haves and wants. I'm just going to read one because I don't want to get into all of them. But so we had a listener who reached out and he was like, I have a fourplex. I want to, it's, it's available at a five to 6% cap rate in Aurelia, Ontario, offering 80% seller financing. So a vendor take back mortgage. And he's willing to go even higher on the vendor take back so a higher leverage point for the right price. And he wants to sell it to somebody from the podcast. He said to us, he's like, I, I want you to that. put this out on the podcast, put it out on your social media, and I want you to sell it to somebody from that. And so this is really what kind of prompted us to do this haves and wants section. So um, we do, I have like five or 10 more of these, but if you have anything that you want to be included on the haves and wants list, if there's something you're, uh, uh, you know, if you're a buyer in a certain market, if you're a wholesaler in a certain market, if you're an owner in a certain certain market, send us a message. Tell us what you want. We'll do a shout out on the show. I'll make sure we carve out some more time for it. And we'll put it at the beginning of one of our episodes coming up so that everybody hears about it and get we get attention towards it because we'd love to connect our listeners. It's like one of our favorite things to do. So reach out for sure. Love it. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Hope you got a ton of value out of today's episode. Go leave us a five-star rating. Write us a review. It makes our day. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317 Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.